it, Shelley did a good job reading that today, but you wouldn't know from Shelley's reading that, that most Greek scholars would say, that's just two sentences. The first sentence is, is, is very clear. It runs from, um, let's see, 3 to 15. Um, and it's just this giant run-on sentence that keeps going with all these great things that God has done that, that Paul is offering praise for. Um, and so it's got this expanding sort of way. And it's like one of those things that it's like Paul did not have the preacher in mind with these two sentences. I mean, obviously you could do them separately, but we have nine weeks to do the book of Ephesians, so i got to get going. Uh, doing three, three verses the first Sunday something I've read in hindsight. Um, uh, um, but you've got this these two sentences that contain so much within them, just tons and tons of information. And not only that, if some of you are probably familiar with like what a hyperlink is or something, you click on something online or hover your mouse over something like a footnote, and it expands to include something longer than the last 400 words you've read. If that's ever happened to you. Or if you're reading a book that has endnotes, which I think should be like banned to the third level of hell, um, and you flip all the way back to look at your endnote, and it goes on for four pages, and you're like, there's no way I'm going to remember what I'm reading on this page when I get done with the three pages in the back here. Um, and that is one of those things that tends to happen. And yet what Paul has done here with all these images and language that just Shelley just read for us is he's making like all of these are endnotes. All of these are cast out to different portions of the Bible that expand and provide more meaning. His summary of, of, of his prayers and what he wants for these people is just so expansive. And it just like, it doesn't even stay with one image at all, really. It just jumps to the next image to the next image, to the next image. And in English and in Greek, the, the metaphors are like incredibly complex. They go from uh, metaphors of adoption to medium metaphors, to metaphors of commerce, to metaphors of politics, to metaphors of, of um, religions, what the religions, this word mystery is popular and that, that we heard a couple times is popular during this time too. It just jumps from all these expansive things. And the, the thing is, if you've been attending here for a while, is I'm dumb enough to try and tackle them all in 22 to 28 minutes. God save us. Um, because that would be about 10 seconds on each of all the things he throws out in each of those things. And as much as I'd like to be, if I make them, I'm like, ah, oh, that'll only be 10 seconds. It'll actually be 10 minutes thus making the sermon like 47 hours long. Um, and that's where we're at with that. And so this first one is, is 201 words, this first section of this prayer. And seven of them are verbs, um, and they're these amazing things that God has doing and has done for his people. And not only that, they also have these um, uh, multi-layered sort of meanings. And so what Brian read to us from the book of Deuteronomy about how God elected these people and chose these people. They were, in some sense, the least in the world. They were the least numerous, and yet God has taken them and, and loved them and teach them as, treated them as his chosen possession, is actually just in one expansion of that point on that you are God's possession. But if you were to throw out all the connections to the Old Testament, it would just keep going and going and going. And so we have this, this complex thing. And part of me, when I read this, these, these, these words from Paul, I was thinking about, has anybody ever seen the movie Contact? 
with Jody Foster, maybe that helps. Or read the book by Carl Sagan. Um, I've I've seen it like three or four times because it was on TBS when I was in college. Long story. You just watch what's on TV, even if you don't like it. Um, and and part of the problem is I could never figure out what the movie was really about. I think it's because Carl Sagan has a notion of of cosmology and what the universe means that is just so foreign to the Christian it's very hard to grasp. But there's this moment where they send Jodie Foster, who's the scientist, to 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 space or wherever she goes, um, and they ask her what it was like, and she says they should have sent a poet. Um, and I think that some of what we're seeing with Paul's imagination here is that all the things that he's seen encapsulated in Christ, all the things that have happened in this moment, all the things that are coming together in this one thing, it's, it's like they should have sent a poet. Now, I think Paul is doing his best through prayer to be a poet, to take all these things and write them as if they were poetry, to, to sort of lay them out for us. And if you were a first century a Jewish hearer, some of them might, most of them would actually expand just in your mind. You would, you would, uh, another weird movie reference, but it would be like a beautiful mind where all the things begin to connect for you. Unfortunately for us, it's, it's not quite that way. And so we could, we could hyperlink all these things to what they mean. But, but the, for this morning, I just want us to sort of move forward looking at what God has done for us. Now, one of the weird parts about this is the Greek language is, has this way of capturing everything in a way that's very complex. So if you look at the back of the bulletin, there's this phrase, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. So the, the fish logo that you see on the back of cars, sometimes being attacked by the Darwin fish and sometimes eating the Darwin fish. And I, I haven't seen many more than that, but I'm sure there are more and more Darwin fishes um, involved in this fish thing was an early Christian logo that sort of they would use to to sort of make the image of what they mean. And it actually works as an acronym. And so when you look at certain fishes, you'll see Greek on the inside of them. Um, and there was this Greek phrase that they would use, which was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, um, Savior, was sort of the anagram for what fish is in Greek. But Sarah Rudin, whose book I have here, I was going to read the portion, but I'm deciding not to right now. She says, you know, she's a translator of, of, of lots of Greek works. And she says, you know, early Christians had this way of taking this explosive language and making it even more so. So in this phrase, you have Jesus Christ, and they would be like, this is, uh, Jesus is like Bob in the ancient world. Like, so you have Bob, who is now the anointed one, which for the Jewish imagination would mean a lot. And then you would have the Son of God, which would sort of go after the Roman imagination, that he is the Son of the Most High God, actually in a way that all the other gods aren't or maybe possibly don't even exist, and that he is the one who saves us. And so Sarah Rodin, wrote, uh, Rudin summarizes the phrase as, Jesus is the Savior. By dying in the flesh, he delivered humankind from death, which as both Jews and pagans faced with this statement might have noticed more than this father was supposed to have done for humankind by any means. Oh, you know, crazy Greek speakers. The buildup is like a slow explosion from an ordinary name of a crucified criminal to the hope of the universe. It's five short words of total defiance. And as usual, you can do it to a dance, which is the way that the phrase rhymes in Greek. Is that this Greek language has this way of sort of expanding and being more than, than what it is. And so this is what Paul begins with in this letter. 
This is the ways in which we sort of find this. And, and Paul is using what would, would be like the language of worship. Many, many scholars of Ephesians have actually tried to place Paul's opening hymn as he's gathering together sort of the early Christians' liturgical resources for their prayers. This is something we know he does in Colossians. It's something we know he does in Philippians. Um, and many people say what, what's happening here at the beginning of Ephesians is he's taking a lot of the statements of songs and psalms and sayings they have about what God has done in Jesus Christ and putting them all out there at once. Now, if you've ever heard anybody complain about contemporary worship songs, this is like such a mess. It's the same thing over and over and over again. It seems like the early Christians were doing just about the same thing as well. Um, and only in, a, in, in such a fast way that it would be hard for you to actually understand it. But this opening prayer is a celebration of this larger story. Celebration of what's going on in the universe. It's a celebration of all that God has done. It's a celebration that moves us beyond simple categories into larger places. And so these seven verbs that happen here in the first section is, is that they are blessed they are chosen, they are destined, they are lavish, they are made known, and that they are gathered by this God. An amazing seven verbs that sort of name so many things. And as we've talked about before, sometimes translators use the same Greek phrase a couple different times to make meaning because they get sick of translating everything the same way. They have to earn their money somehow um, is sort of the way it works. But in this, each of these is different Greek phrases over and over again, is that he's just sort of piling these up. And so as we are blessed ones by the God who has blessed us and made us to be a blessing to the nations, as we are chosen ones, as Brian read for us in the Deuteronomy, chosen out among the many to be the people of God, as we are the destined ones, that there's this notion of destiny that's attached to what God is doing here, that God has destined us for this, that God has lavished this on us, that God is one who lavishes with us. God is one who is making known the mystery of the ages, and God is one who is, who is gathering it all together and putting Christ at the head to bring its fulfillment. What I find fascinating about this is these things, is like, is this our language for God? A God who lavishes a God who chooses, a God who destines and has a destiny for us, a God who raises us up. I mean, I often think like what well, my vocabulary for God is so much more limited. And yet in just, you know, a couple verses, one sentence in Greek, Paul actually makes several more uses that I could use to understand my God. I mean, not many times do I think when I wake up in the morning that God has lavished on me goodness. That God has sealed me, that God has been with me, that God has made known to me the mystery of the ages. It's, it's like we have a, a limit of our language with God, and yet there's so much more we could say. A good place to start with that would be the early portion of the book of Ephesians. That God is one who blesses us. And this, this thing that keeps piling up here is so that we would be reminded to know the hope which God has give, called us. All this is so that we would know the hope at which God has called us into. It's the portion of what Paul is trying to do here in this letter. And so this we talked about last week is sort of about the timeline that happens here. And you can see this operating even in this phrase. is that on the bottom we talked about how we have normal time, uh, the time that we live in, timeline. 
And then at the, at the top, we have the new time begun in Jesus Christ. The new timeline. That, and through our baptism or through what Christ has done on the cross, God opens up this new timeline. Opens up this new space. But what I think is fascinating about the book of Ephesians is it confronts something that many of us do, which is like God made the universe. Um, it didn't go so well. Um, we, we messed it all up. And then what happened is, is that God called the people. Uh, that project uh, maybe didn't go as well as he had hoped either. And so finally, in the cross, he does something to change that. And we're partakers of this new timeline. But actually, as you read this opening to Ephesians, is what it says is almost like that this is the plan all along. That what's been chosen and done is now being known, made known in the present. But it's not like it wasn't meant to be that all along. I mean, it changes the notion that I think many of us can fall into is that God finally was like, well, it's just really bad. So I'm going to go have to down there and do it myself. So that God in his infinite wisdom has made this mystery sort of something that has, is, is becoming known as it's always been true. That God is one who lives and breathes and acts in this way. It's not something that begun in Jesus Christ, but it's something that's made known in that moment. It's a mystery that's revealed. And I think we've talked about it before, but, but we have this notion with mystery is like a whodunit, which is like, how are we going to figure out this mystery? Um, but what Paul here is talking about mystery is, is sort of as something that's being made and revealed. Now, one of the most amazing parts about this is mystery is very popular in the religions at the time. You would come and join my sort of cult or Thyrus or Mithras or, or any other god, Artemis, and we would teach you things. We would give you knowledge. And we would call these mysteries, right? And so you would go out to the world and you would say, I know the mysteries of this God. And they would say, oh, tell us. And they'd be like, ha no. Um, no, you have to come. You have to join the system. Um, it's like a, a pyramid scheme almost. Um, no, you have to come and join and get in. And then maybe the mysteries will be known to you. Like, but what's like the Masons. Yeah, like the Masons. Um, I was thinking of uh, essential oils, which is a thing now, too. Um, <laughs> once you join, the mysteries of the essential oils will be known to you, but you must buy the book and subscribe and get this. Um, no harm to anybody who does that. Kelly does. Our house smells like lavender every day. <laughs> but what the early Christians do is they say this mystery is being made known in a way that makes it public. The Christian that goes in the marketplace and says, the mysteries of the Lord Jesus Christ are being made known to me. People would say, tell us. And they'd be like, how much you want to know? You want to know it all? Well, if you're going to follow Paul's intro to the Ephesians here, it's going to take a long time to explain it all to you. But they're going to make known to you what God has done in Jesus Christ. There is no hidden knowledge. This is, this is something that comes in later Christianity with the Gnostics that sort of practice the same thing. But what Paul is saying at this beginning is that this mystery is being known, made known to all people. And as we'll say in other places, it's God's goodwill to gather all people to himself. That God's making this thing known out in the world. The second thing from this image that, that we've talked about a little bit is Paul uses this spiritual places that we reside with Christ in a different plane, in a different reality now. And so that, that fits what's up here, too, is that we, we've moved to this different plane. Now, one of the weird parts about the book of Ephesians is that it's not fully subdued yet, either. 
that the principalities and powers, the things of this realm, are still sort of warring there as well. As Christ is seated at the right hand, this, this battle is beginning to end. And there are other parts of the New Testament where it sounds like it's over too, but that, that we are seated there with him at the proximity where this will end. Now, one of the things and the challenges with all these words and blessings and, and what God is doing to lavish us on it is that some of us will, will go, well, that must be all spiritual. It must be spiritual. None of it's material goodness that God is giving us. And I think Paul would say, no, you're wrong. And some of us will say, well, it's all material goodness. If God isn't making my life better with material gains right now, um, that, that's where this happens. And I think Paul would say, no, you're wrong. What Paul would say is what, what this, and the ancient imagination has is better, is that what's happening in the spiritual realm, what's happening in the physical realm, what's happening in the material realm, are all mirrors of each other. There is no way in which you're saying, well, that's just up in heaven, but you're just right here. Or that that will just be true for you someday, but you're not really gaining those things in the present. Paul would have this attitude of like, all of this is being encapsulated in who we are now someday, in which it will come in its fullness. This is where it says that the Spirit is the down payment for us of what we will have in the future. And one of the phrases that, that Ruth had asked me uh, that occurs 11 times in the first 12 verses is, what does it mean to be in Christ? It is in Greek, and, 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 and Christos is how it would sound in, uh, in Greek too, is that there there's this phrase that Paul keeps using is that what does it mean to be in, or he keeps saying in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. You can highlight them all in your Bible. It's a, I think it's 11 times in the 12 verses there. And I think what Paul means by being in Christ is a lot of things. It means we exist on a different plane. It means we have a different home. I mean, there are lots of things. If I were to ask you to tell you about yourself. Well, like, I'm, I'm a Chicagoan, I root for the Cubs, um, uh, these things, this, and what Paul is trying to remind the Ephesians of is all that's true about you now is that you are in Christ, that you are seated in this cosmic place. And then if you wanted to list the things that aren't great about you, you know, I'm not as smart as I could be, I'm not as, as kind as I could be, I'm not as this, Paul would say, wait, hang on a second, you're still in Christ. Let's have the Spirit and let's have the power of God move you into the fulfillment of that truth. You gain a new language. You gain a new identity. You gain a new mission and purpose to life when you're, when you're brought into Christ. One of the ways I think that this, this works for us, and it's, it's a challenge in my life, is that once you move into Christ, what, you, what your motion of prayer into the world as you go deeper into, to, into who Christ is, is almost like lament. And that's like weird. You, you, you gain access into Christ, and what you then begin to do is lament. And I think is what, as you move into Christ, you begin to see the ways in which the world is distorted from God's good will for you. You begin to see that the high cost of addiction, or the high cost of, of earning all that you can in this life, or the high cost of, of um, the loneliness and, and anxiety that many of us suffer from, isn't just that it, it's bad for us, it makes us look bad, although many of the things that, that in Christ that change when you move into Christ, and you'd be like, oh, that's good. Sure, he's a workaholic, and he's neglecting his child, but look at all the stuff they have. Um, it was, it's supposed to be funny, but <laughs> you know, those always hit too close to home sometimes. They're like, 
Um, oh yeah, that's a, that's true too. Darn. Uh, jokes don't work. It's like dark humor, I think, is, is what that is. Anyways, um, you know, that, that you begin to move into those things, and then when you look out at the world as you move into Christ, you begin to see, hey, things are not as they should be. And so it moves your prayer life, I think, from one to just like seeking or God help me with the sickness or that which we do and we bless and we should do, to seeing the ways in which things are just formed in the way that they shouldn't be, awaiting the completion of what God is going to do. It helps you name those things. The last thing that I think comes from being in Christ is you gain a new people. For Gentiles and for Jews, there's, there's this idea of Gentiles are us, is that you were no people until God made you a people. You were not in a place until God set you in this place. And what you gain by moving into Christ is this community of people who are with you, who are moving in the same path, who've had the same experience of the transforming life of God that's been lavished upon us. These are the things in which, in which God has done for us, this, this deposit of our inheritance, so that we can be to the praise of the glory of God. And how's that for a church mission statement? What are we here for? We are here to be the praise resounding with the goodness of what God has done to his glory. It's a good thing. It's a big challenge, but it's something in which we're called and given into. The second Greek phrase, which is, I think, 19 letters, depending on how you type it out. Uh, anybody want to attempt to say it? It's up on the screen, Carla. Uh, you're the one who would attempt to say it. Anakafala Eo. I think that's exactly the way the computer said it to me when I wanted to find out how to pronounce it. Anakafala Eo. This is the phrase in which God is going to sum up all things in Jesus Christ. And the root, the root word is head, which also comes back in at the end of the passage, that Christ is the head of all things, and the church is his body here on earth. That this head thing is sort of, is sort of coming out in this passage, and God is coming to sum up all things. Now, sum up is a math term. You'll see it translated in other ways to bring unity to, or to bring meaning to, or to, to sort of do this out. And that this is a phrase that's not used, it's only used twice in the New Testament. But what Paul is saying is that Christ is going to be the one who sums up all things. You know, I've made this joke before, but the Greek for all things means all things. <laughs> God is going to sum up all things in Jesus Christ. And so this, is, this has been a challenge for me, and this is probably this part of the sermon I'm the least confident about because it's uh, probably the closest to home for many of us, which is... If you tell a story of, like, let's say, a camping trip gone bad, you tell the story of, of something that you intended to go for good for life and everything goes wrong, but you're telling it later, and you're summing it up in a way that, that sort of, like, says, and this is the meaning of it. You're bringing something out, right? You know, in the moment, it was hell, but afterwards, you're bringing out something of it. So, for instance, for me, me in my life, it's that, like, there's this, uh, I, I don't think I've told this quite here, although many of you are aware of it, is that like I grew up with a pretty big learning disability, which wasn't that big of a deal, except for that I also had a twin brother who didn't. And if you know brothers, that's a, they're not kind to each other, especially for, I don't know, K through 
22. Um, uh, that, uh, and so this severe lack in my life was, was sort of deeply painful. I mean, so every night of the week, God bless my parents, they would sit Monday through Thursday with me, and I'd have to do two spelling tests for the 10 words at the end of the week, which sounds like pure hell. Let me tell you, it was, but I can't imagine what type of hell it was for them um, to sit and do two spelling tests. It's great, Matt. Don't put the A before the E. It's great. Just do it. And yet their patience through that was remarkably phenomenal. Um, and the patience that everybody surrounded me with is I sort of worked through God knows what it was. I mean, I've, I've read some of the papers, but it would have made no sense to me. But, but to tell that story now is to sum it up in a way that brings meaning to it. People were patient with me. People cared with me. It's, it, it's not to say that the hurt wasn't there. It's not to say that the pain of whatever this is in your life isn't there. It's not to say that it didn't matter. But what it says is that the pain and the anguish, the dark things that distort this world that aren't from God, someday they'll all be brought to a head. They'll all be summed up in Jesus Christ. It's an incredibly powerful thing to think about. And it's important, I think, that to, to, to remember that these things don't come from God. And yet somehow what Jesus is going to do is bring them all to a head, all things. All things will be brought to a head in which what they will be changed. One, one person I read this week said, What's lost is nothing to what's found. And all death that was whatever that ever was sex set next to life would scarcely fill a cup. What's lost is nothing to what's found. And all death that was ever was set next to life. Christ who is life and is life would scarcely fill a cup. That what God has done powerfully in Jesus Christ is he's going to sum up all things. He's going to sum them up in a way in which we will find goodness and truth as God's spirit is with us. Two last short observations. One is that this is an Easter hymn. One of my favorite things we say about Easter is we are Easter people and hallelujah is our song. To say that in the darkness of the world, we are Easter people and hallelujah is our song. And this is one of the things I think is important about that, is that as Christians, we often become cross people, and it's important that we are cross people. But we should never forget the fact that we are Easter people. God has raised Jesus up to the right hand, and he sits there in power, and in Christ, we are there with him. We are Easter people and hallelujah is our song. To shout that out in the darkness of the world brings deep meaning. And the last thing that he ends with is, is uh, the verse that you maybe sometimes wish he would cut off. He ends up that, that this is something that God is bringing to in his body in the church. One of my favorite emails I ever got was from somebody a bit more formal to me. He said, to the saints of defiance, the saints of this church, we don't often think of each other and ourselves as saints. And yet he said, to the saints of the people gathered here, Paul says that to the Ephesians. Not only that, so he has this idea that this church, this gathering in Gledwood Springs, these gatherings throughout the world, these gatherings in our community, are signs of God doing this work in Jesus Christ, which he's bringing to a head. They're marvelous things, and yet sometimes we think, this is so asinine, so boring, so conflictual, so why did he say that? Why didn't they remember my birthday, this, that, and the other? But Paul says that the mystery of the ages is going to be completed through what we do here. 
And it's worth noting that most of the language in the New Testament where it says you, it's the you version of plural, which as I've made this joke before, it's you all. You all are going to do that. The Christian life and the holy life, it's not one we do alone, but it's one we do together. And that's what Paul proclaimed for us in the letter to the Ephesians, is that this is something we'll be called into together to bring life to the world and bring life out of ourselves. Because someday, God is going to come and set it all back to right. He's going to sum it all up in Christ, and that'll be the life. That'll be the ways in which we gain the Spirit. And we move into union with the God who proclaims to us grace and peace. Let us pray. God, you've gathered us here. We were not a people, and yet you have made us a people. If you has made us a people, you've called us into life. You've blessed us. You've chosen us. You've destined us. You've lavished on us. You've made to known the ways in which you are going to gather this all up in your son, Jesus. We ask that you remind us of that, that you empower us on that path, that you make us into the people who see that though we see in a mere dimly, the fullness of what comes and the fullness of what you've done will someday be known here and that good news will be claimed throughout the world. We ask all of this in your holy name. Amen. Does anyone have a copy of this song we're going to sing? Sing out. So uh, this is a new melody to an old hymn, and it's, it's, it's supposed to be a little more up to date. I love this first verse. The church is one foundation is Jesus Christ. She is his new creation by water and word from heaven. He came and sought her to be his holy bride, and with his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. <clears throat> Can you play that note?